We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in things that are created called angels and demons. Now, to some ears, that may all sound rather ridiculous and irrational. Uh, To others, it sounds perfectly normal. But we don't get our understanding of the world from Harry Potter or from Ghostbusters or from Greek mythology or from the stars or some fantasy world that we create and write about and make movies about. And the Bible explains reality to us. And when we read the Bible, we soon realize that it doesn't fit neatly into many of our assumptions and our expectations. It's full of surprises. The Bible is immersed in the dirt, sweat, blood, and the physicality of the world. And the Bible also gives us a presentation of spiritual realities. It does both of those things. Christians are not naturalists. That is, believing that there is nothing outside of the physical universe. We believe in spiritual realms. And most Aussies are not absolute naturalists. A lot of Australians, though, uh, maybe they kind of believe in God vaguely, but they think God is hibernating or he's gone along on a, a long cruise and he's not really interested or interacting with us. Uh, many people in Australia will observe religious special days like Easter and Christmas, maybe going along to a special church service. But it's not because we actually think we can know God. It's part of cultural observance or a family tradition. But do we stop to think the words on the, on the pages of the Bible are human words, but they are more. They are God's word to us. Do we stop and wonder, you know, Jesus was a man, a full, real man, flesh, blood. He laughed and he grew tired. You could tickle him and he would yell when he had pain. But this same Jesus is the eternal God. Do we pause to consider that the astonishing world we live in with the water and the dirt and the air with its infinite molecules and atoms, the, the smells and tastes, it's the earth, it's organic, the stuff of life, and, and yet the universe and even us, we are not the products of chance. We believe in God. Now, the great distinction is not between spiritual and physical, as though we have God and spirit and the devil sitting on one side and then people and everything else on the other side. That's not the great distinction. Uh, in Chris's latest book, biblical, uh, sorry, Critical Biblical Theory, he's making this point, and, and, and it's true and he's, uh, of the scriptures. He says this, The key distinction in Genesis 1 is not between the material and the spiritual, a question which modernity is endlessly fascinated but between the creator and the creation. That is, there is God who is eternal and uncreated, and then there's everything else, which is angels and demons and spirits and people and animals and mountains and oceans. That's the great distinction. So, you know, with Christmas coming up, uh, I'm sure we're taking out decorations, or maybe soon enough, and one of the decorations a lot of homes have are those, you know, snow globes, and you put them on display at, at home, and, you know, those, those plastic uh, dome sort of uh, things, yeah, and it's got a plastic house inside, and plastic animals, and plastic people, and plastic snowflakes, and, and, and it's like all enclosed. There are some people who think that that's all there is. There is nothing outside of the dome in this universe, Right? But the Bible says there is. It is God. He's outside and he made everything that is inside. We are all created by God. 
And there's a couple of mistakes that we want to avoid when we're thinking about the Holy Spirit and spirituality, as we're going to be doing this morning. First up, we want to be careful and not reduce Christianity to a set of rules or morality, as though the point of Christianity is simply to be a good person and, or to reduce the Bible to simply a moral example for people to follow. We don't want to explain away all of the weird and spectacular that we read in the Bible. You know, sometimes you hear a book or a teacher saying that, oh, we don't really believe Jesus rose from the dead. Oh, we don't really believe those miracles of Jesus happened. That they are just simply allegories to help us understand what it means to be human. Now, don't explain the Bible away. That's one mistake. Another mistake is this. When we exaggerate or overplay the spiritual and the supernatural, And by this, I mean, there are people who find spiritual agents and meanings in every tiny little thing, as though every inkling and vibe is spiritual and comes from God. Or finding angels and demons and spirits under the carpet or behind the door or every book or every blade of grass. Now, friends, God defines reality, not our human vibrations. Now, in our reading today, Paul and his team are reaching the mighty city of Ephesus. And we're looking at the first part of this story today in chapter 19. And these are the three points I want us to to be looking at. One, we believe in the Holy Spirit. Two, the Holy Spirit unites us with Jesus. And three, real spirituality casts aside fake spiritualities. So when the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus first comes to Ephesus, something changes. The gospel makes an imprint in that city that can't simply be brushed away or explained away. So firstly, we believe in the Holy Spirit. So Paul arrives at the city. Uh, Today, uh, Ephesus is one of the most famous archaeological sites in the the world. Uh, It's situated in the southwest tip of Turkey. But at the time, it was a spectacular Roman city. Paul enters, he starts, and he meets, we're told, a group of disciples. Uh, This group of disciples are not following Jesus. They're following John the Baptist. They haven't heard about the Holy Spirit. They haven't really understood Jesus yet, as that becomes apparent. So we read from verse 1. Paul takes the road through the interior, arrives at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we haven't even heard there is a Holy Spirit. So when we hear the word and the name Holy Spirit... It's important for us not to import whatever spiritual language we can imagine. The Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is not a she. The Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. The Holy Spirit is God, the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is fully and eternally God. There was never a time in eternity when the Holy Spirit didn't exist. The Holy Spirit was involved in the creation of the universe. The Holy Spirit is involved in the writing of the scriptures. The Holy Spirit is involved in all kinds of things that the Bible tells us about. And part of what the Bible says is that in in the Old Testament, God promises that a day will come when he sends his spirit who will dwell in God's people and breathe in them new life. Now, the Holy Spirit was active in the Old Testament, but through Jesus... The Spirit will come in a new and deeper personal way. God's Spirit will dwell in us. He will sanctify us. He will bring us comfort. 
There will be zero Christians if not for the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we see here in Ephesus. But the role that the Holy Spirit has in Ephesus that it's focused on is how the Holy Spirit brings about faith in the Lord Jesus. And that's our second point. The Holy Spirit unites us with Jesus. So one of the the chief works of the Holy Spirit is to highlight Jesus and to unite us to Jesus. Now, of course, there are some Christians who believe we should be talking about the Holy Spirit all of the time and that our focus needs to be on the Spirit. But that's not how the Holy Spirit sees it. Now, there are occasions in the Bible when the Holy Spirit is more visible and center stage for a little bit. The Holy Spirit is active and essential, and we honor God as we talk about the Holy Spirit in right ways. But generally, the Holy Spirit is working behind the scenes. So when you're watching a movie, for example, how often do you see the cameraman on the screen? It's kind of unusual, isn't it? Are we expecting the the cameraman to to step out in front and waving his hand so that we can see him, that he's he's the person who's doing the the, the filming? The cameraman is behind the camera, isn't it? See, the spirit is usually um, not on the stage, He is directing from behind according to the Father's instructions. He's pointing the camera, and he's pointing the camera at Jesus. That's one of the big works of the Holy Spirit, is to point us to Jesus so that we can see Jesus. The Spirit wants us talking about Jesus and focusing on him. And so we read from verse 3. Paul asked, what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. John, there's John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist is long dead, uh, but they have received his baptism. Now, John the Baptist had an important role. God gave him a role to prepare people for the coming of the Messiah. In fact, John preached this message. He says, look for the one who will come and baptize with the Holy Spirit. And so verse 4, Paul explains, he says, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, Jesus. So John's baptism was a temporary measure. He was like the the entree to give you a taste and get excited for the main course. Or maybe you've ordered a a new car and while you're waiting for this new car to to come, the, the, the car company gives you a temporary vehicle for just a temporary measure to help you out. It's not the brand new Whatever it is, Lexus SUV, whatever that's coming, it's an old Toyota Corolla, but it's serviceable and it helps. It's a temporary thing. See, Paul is explaining that John's message was a message preparing people for the reality that is Jesus. But I want us to notice how receiving the Holy Spirit here is tied to believing in Jesus. Verses 5 to 7. On hearing this, that is, hearing about Jesus, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. So Christian baptism today is about identifying and belonging. To say in the name of Jesus is to say, I now believe in this Jesus and what Christ has done for me. I now belong to him. My life now identifies with Jesus. That's what's going on here. So as Paul places his hands on them, presumably during baptism, the Holy Spirit comes upon these 12 men. See, there is a close connection between believing in Jesus and receiving the Holy Spirit. 
Now, when you read through the, the book of Acts, sometimes you, you hear about people who believe in Jesus and, and receive the Holy Spirit immediately afterward. Other times the order seems to swap around a little bit. But the point is these, they, they belong together. These are two interconnected parts of the same event. Paul, later on, a few years later, he's writing a letter to this, this church in Ephesus. And this is how he explains it in Ephesians 1. We read it earlier in the service today. And you were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promise, Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are in God's possession to the praise of his glory. So again, believing in Jesus and receiving the Spirit are connected. They are the two sides of the, of the one coin. But it's another helpful reminder, though, isn't it? Again, we can't reduce Christianity to a moral guide. We can't say knowing God or liking Jesus is simply about being a good person and following his example. Now, friends, Christianity is a divine work of God's grace, redeeming sinful people and reconciling us to the living God. The Holy Spirit unites us to Jesus. The Holy Spirit takes that objective external work of Christ on the cross in his resurrection and makes it ours. The Holy Spirit helps us understand who Jesus is and to believe in him. In 1 Corinthians 12, uh, Paul says, It's by the Spirit that we confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts, Jesus is Lord. And needs that work of the Spirit, that work of God, because sin is that stubborn, isn't it? That the sin problem, it's so big, it's not like we can fix it ourselves. Uh, we had a, a problem recently with our car boot. And, and in fact, we had it for a number of months. Uh, the boot wasn't always opening. You know, you press the button and it's moving to flick open and, and it, it got caught. It wasn't opening all the time. And when it did, it made this excruciating crunching sound which was like really embarrassing, like any time, so we're putting the shopping in a boot and then we press it and it opens the boot, it let out this scream that such that people would walking past giving us strange looks, what is going wrong? And, 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 and it wasn't, if you, Harry Potter, think of the, the mandrake in Harry Potter, that screaming pot plant, it was like that sound, it was terrible. Anyway, being the fixer of the family, uh, it took me a few months, but I went out to the garage. I said to Susan, don't worry, I've got all this in control. I'm going to have a look. And, I, and I, so I went out and I started fiddling around and maybe I took a couple of tools with me. I don't know what they do, but you know, you, that's what you're meant to do, isn't it? Take the tools with you. And, and I had a look around and, and, and I pushed some things and I punched some things and whacked and kicked and it didn't work. Now, we knew the problem was there for like three, four months. And we kind of tried to ignore it, but it was so embarrassing, and then eventually we couldn't open the, the boot. So we couldn't, there was a problem, and we couldn't fix it. So eventually we decided, okay, we need to take it to the mechanic. Uh, we paid hundreds of dollars. They identified the issue in about two and a half seconds and fixed it about 13 seconds later. That's simply to illustrate not only my naivety when it comes to cars, but to understand we are all carrying with us ideas and attitudes that are far more serious than we realize, and we cannot fix it. We need a God who knows us. 
We need a God who has the power to save us. We need a God who is merciful to come and take away our sin and to restore us. And that is what God has done for us in his, the death of his son and by his resurrection. And the Holy Spirit, he's making that objective work real and personal in our lives as we repent and believe in Jesus. The Holy Spirit brings us to Jesus. And thirdly, real spirituality casts out aside fake spiritualities. Real spirituality casts aside fake spiritualities. Now on this occasion, as the 12 men received the Holy Spirit, there are some visible and unusual signs accompanying this. And I'll come back to them in a moment. But as we keep reading, I want us to notice that there is an emphasis in Paul's ministry in, uh, in Ephesus. His ministry and mission have an emphasis, and that is to teach the Bible, to explain the gospel so that people hear and believe. That's what needs to happen. That's the focal point here in Ephesus. But at the same time, here in Ephesus, um, God is doing all these incredible things and performing miracles through Paul. Anyway, let's read, and then I'll I'll explain it. I'm going to read from verse 8. Paul enters the synagogue, spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. Some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, there for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And then verse 11, And God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. Where are the miracles today? Should we be expecting Mentone to be like Ephesus? Are we less Holy Spirit filled because we're not seeing miracles or speaking in tongues? Okay, what does this passage tell us Paul is focusing on? What, what is he to focus on? It is to teach and explain the gospel. The miracles are here something that God attaches afterward in this particular instance. Now, in some of the cities that Paul visits, we've seen some of this already. Uh, There are miracles and amazing signs accompanying his preaching that happens from time to time. On many occasions, we don't see that happening. Uh, That means miracles and signs, they are not a compulsory presence when we're telling people about Jesus. Most of the time, in in Acts, in fact, when the gospel is preached and people are converted, there are no signs there, there are no tongues speaking, there are no miracles attached. So Ephesus is kind of unusual in that. But which raises a question, though. Why is there is unusual, why here is there an unusual volume of the miraculous? There's a couple of explanations. Uh, One, some Bible scholars point out that Only in a few places in the book of Acts do we see this volume of of miracles. At Pentecost, when the gospel goes to Samaria, and here in Ephesus. And so they argue that at new and key decisive moments, when the gospel was growing in those early days, preaching of the gospel was accompanied with these astonishing signs. So there may be something in that. Uh, Another explanation is that Ephesus was known for its magic and its spiritual encounters. And so it probably wasn't unusual when Paul comes along and God does these miracles through him because these people were used to the the, the supernatural at work. And so in that culture, is God contesting the false spiritualities with the power of the real spirit 
And doing so, yes, through the preaching of the word, but also in miracles and seeing lives transformed. But even here we see that a miracle, and seeing a miracle, it's not the, the mic drop, drop moment you know, that we might think it is. I know sometimes we think if only people saw a, a miraculous sign from God, they would just drop and start following Jesus straight away. That's not necessarily true. Miracles can be a sign of God's grace or a sign of his judgment. They can serve to cause people to fear and to wonder. They can cause people to look to find the one who can save. But in themselves, they do not save anyone. In fact, even again in chapter 19, the main thing is not the tongues and the miracles. That's not the headline in the newspaper in Ephesus. The main thing is the salvation people are experiencing when they believe God's words about Jesus. But today, God remains God. Our God is that God who was there in Ephesus that day. Friends, do not doubt that. God hasn't lost any of his wisdom or power or authority. He is not frustrated by events that are going on in the world, whether it's an optus outage or climate change or any human work. He's not frustrated by any of those things. But the Bible shows us the greatest miracle of all is the incarnation. When God became human, and because of him, the spirit of God can live or bring life into dead people. And as God's spirit is convicting people and turning them to Jesus, the city of Ephesus is taking notice. This Jesus is changing lives. God is overturning false spirituality. You can't ignore it. And so in the rest of this chapter, we find three public incidents that Luke records for us. We're going to look at the third one next Sunday. But today, there are two. One, there are some people who want to hijack Jesus. And second, other people fear God and they repent. So firstly, those who want to hijack Jesus. So as word gets around of what God is doing in Ephesus, there are some people who hear about Jesus, they see the miracles, and they decide, hey, what kind of pyrotechnic display can we make out of this Jesus? I mean, this is pretty impressive stuff. Right? So they assume Jesus is like the, the latest, newest spiritual source to tap into. Let me, let's use it for our own spiritual experiments. Let's see what happens. I'm going to read from verse 13. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus and Paul preachers, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I, I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. The name of Jesus is not a magical incantation. He is not the latest spiritual toy to play around with. He is not just another spiritual option like adding a new spice to your spice rack at home. <laughs> the seven sons of Sceva find that out the hard way. God won't be mocked. That's really important, isn't it? Jesus is not just another thing to add to your spiritual entourage. Jesus will not allow himself to be used for political or social or personal vendettas and agendas. How dare we treat God with such disdain? But others are hearing 
And their response is right. They are fearful and they repent. Look at from verse 17. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. Friends, don't play games with God. God is not a potluck roast where you can just throw in as many ingredients as you like and you think it's all going to improve the taste. He's not like that. When we are confronted with the reality of Jesus, false spiritualities are exposed for what they are. They are useless, dangerous, and harmful. Repentance is good. Repentance is necessary. And in repentance, we find that that burden of sin is lifted. It's liberating. And Jesus is honored. Notice how uh, Luke summarizes uh, the situation in verse 20. He says, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. The word of the Lord, that is a way of talking about the gospel, the good news of Jesus. The word of the Lord spread And it's the word that grew in power. The the word is God's powerful means by which the dead come to life in him. More people are hearing the gospel. That's what it's talking about. More people are, are, are meeting Jesus and their lives are being changed forever. Now, a miracle can cause fear, cause vexation and amazement, but it's lives that are forever made new through, by Jesus through the Spirit. That, that is compelling and really convicting. Because when we meet Jesus, life alters forever, doesn't it? You are never the same again. The Holy Spirit begins to change our affections and the way we speak and the desires we have, the attitudes we have, we begin to sound more like Jesus. And his love fills us and we love him and we want to love others. Let me ask us this morning, have you received the Holy Spirit? Have you received the Holy Spirit? The answer to this question, it's not to focus on the Spirit or to be looking for the Holy Spirit. It is to believe in Jesus. We know that we have received the Spirit of God because we are trusting Jesus. We know that God's Spirit is working in our life because we are turning away from ideas and commitments that contradict God. We're putting sin to death and instead we're now following him and obeying him. And we want to and we love to. If that describes you, friend, the Spirit is working in you. And let us not strip the Bible of God's supernatural work by his spirit to bring us to Jesus. Let us be careful about downplaying what the scriptures say about the Holy Spirit and about who God is. Instead, let God in his word define true spirituality. That's what's going on in Ephesus. I don't make up stuff. Don't make up stuff about the Holy Spirit. Just don't do that. We don't need to do that. The the Spirit is made known to us in the Bible. The Bible is, of course, God's Spirit breathing God's words to us, for us. 
The Bible gives us the parameters for knowing who the Holy Spirit is and what his work is in us, and especially to show us Jesus. They don't make up stuff. We don't need to try and, and, and think, as though I need to make God's work more interesting. I need to make it more spectacular. That's the only way I'm going to feel more secure in my faith or to, to convince someone about Jesus. We don't need to do that. Believe what God says and how he defines true spirituality. Believe Jesus and live in that and enjoy that. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit from all eternity that you are God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God in three persons. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Spirit by whom we are convicted of sin, convinced of Jesus, and we believe in him. Father, we thank you for the great miracle of conversion and regeneration that we can have new life, eternal life, because of Jesus and by your Spirit. Father God, where we have engaged in false spiritualities and putting our faith in, 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 in imaginations, please forgive us. Help us to repent today. May we not ignore true spirituality, but may you continue to shape us by your word that we may live by the Spirit, enjoying you, growing to be more like Jesus, loving others, and displaying the power of your gospel so that others too may come to know Christ and your great salvation. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.